News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's hard to think that winter is just around the corner, but... It is. We're getting closer. You can feel even a bit of a a change in the weather. Cooler temperatures right now at the end of August. What does the Farmer's Almanac say, though? What should we be bracing for in the coming months? Joining me on the line is Sandy Duncan, Managing Editor of the Farmer's Almanac. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. I know a lot of people look to this as kind of the know-all when it comes to weather. What is the Farmer's Almanac predicting for Canadians come winter? Well, it's an interesting forecast. The Canadian Farmer's Almanac for 2021 is saying that it's going to be a winter divided with some cold conditions as well as drought conditions and a little bit of crazy in between. Um, In your neck of the woods, it doesn't look too crazy, although it does look like um, it'll be kind of colder inland and very wet on the coast and some good snow to the mountains. So it looks like a decent winter if you're in like the uh, wetness. (laughs) That kind of sounds like an average winter for BC, though. What does the the Farmer's Almanac do to, to, to say, we've got this, we know that this is what it's going to look like? Sure. Well, we've been predicting the weather forecast since 1818. Um, We base our long-range outlook on a mathematical and astronomical formula. Um, So we kind of give an overview, a summary of what's to come in the winter, uh, spring, and summer ahead. Each edition contains 16 months of weather forecast. Um, And then we just break the country down into zones, and we break the um, zones down by months, and we kind of give you a three-day interval. So we kind of, if you're trying to figure out what's going to be like for Thanksgiving holiday or perhaps Christmas or perhaps to plan out some uh, ski trip in the uh, winter, we've got the forecast all inside. And do you know what the accuracy rate is for the Almanac? Um, People that follow our forecast say they're about 75 to 80 percent accurate. Now, last winter was a challenging one. Um, We called for a polar coaster winter with lots of ups and downs on the thermometer. And we weren't totally off, but that cold air just didn't seem to want to come down from the Arctic. Um, So that was very interesting. And we like to remind people that we do our best to give people an idea of what may come. But Mother Nature, she's in charge. (laughs) Yes, we get reminded of that quite often. Um, What about some other parts of the country? Is anybody bracing for uh, some some unpredictable or, or weather that's different than what they might normally uh, be be bracing for? Sure. Well, we are predicting an unseasonably mild winter for the eastern provinces, uh, including Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and New Brunswick. Um, we're in the middle of the country. We see more normal seasonal temperatures for Quebec and central Ontario. Ontario, excuse me. Um, but farther west, like we mentioned, um, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and uh, eastern British Columbia, we do see colder, colder than normal winter temperatures um, and a lot of snow in western Quebec and Ontario. And do you find the Almanac, do people still access it with the actual physical book or has technology changed in the way that people get the Almanac information? Well, I'm glad you asked that. This is the first year we're actually introducing that the Canadian Farmer's Almanac is only available in digital-only format, and it's pretty much based on people's requests, and we decided to test it out. So if you want to find out um, how to get a copy, you have to go to farmersalmanac.com, and you can download it. But it's really been interesting because um, a publication that started back in 1818 now is digital and now has a website at farmersalmanac.com that people access not only for the weather but natural living tips, how to uh, make different kinds of foods, and, and just live 
live a happier, healthier lifestyle. <laughs> Which makes sense. You would think with all the technology and all of the apps and different ways that people can try and get weather forecasts, if it's a tried and true method and you rely on that almanac, great to have different ways of getting it. Absolutely. We got to keep up with the times, even though stay true to our traditional approach. <laughs> all right. Any other uh, anomalies or anything else you wanted to share with us? Uh, no, but I'm proud to say that one of our t- winners of the recipe contest is actually from British Columbia. Um, she won third place for her banana recipe, and it's an interesting recipe because it's a little more savory than sweet. So if you're tired of making that banana bread that a lot of people made during the pandemic, we have some great award-winning banana recipes. Uh, which is interesting, too, that I think people think of the almanac as weather only, but there is all that other stuff in it, too. Absolutely. We have tips about, you know, how to boost your immunity, um, gardening information, fishing information. It's kind of a collection of basically how to live life a little more naturally. All right. Sounds great. And people, again, can get it then this year, digital copy, and they can get it to go to the website? Yep, at FarmersAlmanac.com. All right, Sandy, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, a former security official at Canadian telecom giant Nortel claims top secret plans flowed out of Nortel executives' accounts to several mysterious internet addresses in China. Brian Shields says he tried to warn Nortel's executive to take action. Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper has a new piece out on this today. And Sam joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so Brian Shields there, who uh, you've written about and talk about in the piece, says he's disappointed that Ottawa didn't step in to save Nortel. What else did you learn from him? Well, what we learned is that uh, Brian Shields gave a, an extremely detailed account of what he found when uh, in two, 2004 he was asked to in, investigate this strange breach and he tracked it directly back to uh, what what looks like a room full or a building full of servers in Shanghai, and that was his first clue that uh, this this wasn't some random cyber criminal. This was someone that controlled China's internet. Uh, and it turns out that that other investigators pointed to China's most elite cyber war unit. So what he and others told us was that this was a a, a very powerful state-sponsored cyber attack on Nortel, and uh, China focused on Nortel for very specific reasons. Nortel was the world leader. It held the future lead on 5G technology, and uh, China needed uh, Nortel's innovation secrets to to meet its state-mandated telecommunication future. So in the end, uh, what we found was uh, many different espionage techniques from human espionage in Ottawa, planting of bugs in Nortel's facilities. Uh, it, it looks like attempts to compromise Nortel's managers, even Canada's government, with regards to decisions on Nortel, and uh, a very shocking convergence between Chinese intelligence agencies and Chinese organized crime that allegedly work together to spy on Nortel and deliver those uh, crown jewel technology secrets back to Beijing so that Beijing could build its state champion companies. And uh, the alleged benefiter, uh, our experts say, look straight at Huawei. How did that company uh, rise from zero to hero in about 10, 20 years? The experts say that just doesn't happen in telecommunications. We're talking about companies with 10, 20, 50, 100 years of history that were leaders. Um, how, did, how did China catch up so quick?
And did you find through your research and reporting, where was the, the weak link? Was it human uh, humans? Was it the technology that China was able to break through? Well, really a mixture of both. Uh, we talked to... Uh, the, the former Canadian Security Intelligence Service uh, investigator Michel Junot-Katsio, he said in the 1990s, he started to recognize, his agency started to recognize a lot of traffic between Nortel managers going over to China. And uh, what CSIS says is that these were attempts through what, what is called China's United Front to influence leaders inside Nortel, also leaders in, Can- in Canada's government to uh, the benefit of China. The other thing would be uh, you look for, the experts say, you look for the human weaknesses, you try to compromise them, you try to uh, ensure that they won't make the right decisions to protect a company like Nortel. Also, China uh, is extremely powerful in terms of its cyber war capacity. So in detail, we have this, uh, this hacking unit where, you know, you have hundreds of hackers in a building in Shanghai working 24-7, targeting uh, the very, you know, top targets around the world from China's political leaders that, so that the, uh, the military can gather the secrets it wants, whether that be technology, whether it be inside the emails of leaders so you can get, get an idea of what Western leaders are, are going to do and get ahead of them. Uh, there's a line in your piece saying that for months, Shields tracked the hackers, but Nortel's brass was mostly disinterested in the investigation and did little more than change executive account passwords. Uh, if they weren't interested in the investigation, what were they focused on? Well, there's a few things going on. Uh, Mr. Shields and the experts say at the time, uh, cyber espionage, cyber hacking was very new. So although the experts uh, inside the company understood the, the, the insidiousness, the, the, the depth of this breach, the executives were more focused on yearly budgets. They're, they're more focused on spending on innovation. And uh, in some ways, you can't fault them that much because cyber hacking was so new. So it's almost like they were the, the security experts were talking to them and the, the CEOs uh, were thought they were listening to a spy plot. They didn't take it seriously. Uh, some people uh, in the intelligence world say that's a management failure and others say that, you know, there could be certain managers that made bad decisions for bad reasons. Uh, I still don't have clarity on those types of allegations, but what they're suggesting is some people could have been compromised. All right, Sam, we'll leave it there for today. It uh, is a very interesting read. Thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk a bit more about it. Thank you. That is Sam Cooper. He is a global news investigative journalist. If you want to read the full article, you can access it on the Global News website. Your thoughts, if you want to weigh in on this or anything you've heard on the program, please do. Again, the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. You can also email me, jill at cknw.com. Well, as the wildfire danger in BC calms down a little bit, much to the relief of people living in the Okanagan, south of the border in the state of California, there are hundreds of thousands of residents who are on evacuation alert, told they may have to leave their homes as the fires there continue to grow. We're joined now by KCBS reporter Holly Kwan for more on what's happening there. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Sure, no problem. Uh, What is the latest on what's happening with the fires in California? 
Well, the good news is that it seems like the fires are, you know, getting better as far as containment-wise. It's been over a week since we had this unusual lightning storm, which we don't get here in San Francisco area. It sparked wildfires, which really didn't start requiring evacuations until early last week, and then things got out of control. Summer here usually means fog and drizzle, and this time we saw sizzling temperatures and so many wildfires, they stopped naming each one of them. They just started clustering them together. So we've got three major ones surrounding us and choking the skies with this sepia haze, keeping people indoors where they're supposed to be anyway because of the virus pandemic, except for the hundreds of thousands of people who had to evacuate. And that's another thing to worry about is like you've got people who were supposed to be socially distancing. Now they're sleeping on each other's couches and in hotels and in campgrounds. And, you know, what exactly is that impact going to be? So it seems like right now that we got a break from the weather. We didn't get it, see any more lightning strikes. The fog is kind of coming back. So that's going to give some more moisture and humidity um, to the firefighters. And it looks like the containment numbers are starting to come up, but they caution people we're not out of the woods yet, that the fire is still not completely uh, you know, contained or controlled enough where they're going to be able to let most people back into their homes. And just looking at the description that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, Newsom put out uh, saying that more than 1.2 million acres have burned and to get that, that idea in your head saying that it's nearly the size of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that because we have so many fires that are burning around us, I mean, it, it does look it, it's scary, you know, on TV. And believe me, I was up in the middle of some of them last week. And, you know, there are houses that are burned. There are rural areas that are burned. There's pasture land that burned. There are redwood forests and groves that burn. So there's different kinds of terrain that burned. And all of it is, this, you know, iconic for the Bay Area. We love our redwoods. We love the trees that are, you know, right next to the ocean. And all of that area, like near Santa Cruz, um, near some of those big uh, UC Santa Cruz, the college campuses are, are beautiful and they, you know, burned some of the, the areas that people go to camp and brought their kids up. That place is burned. And so it's going to be a while where we go, where we get a chance to go back in and see really what the damage has been. So at this point, you mentioned that some uh, homes had burned or that some structures had burned. Do they know at this point how great the damage is? They're still going to have to assess that. I mean, one fire that I was at, they had already had uh, up to like 845, I think, structures had burned, and a lot of those were homes that I saw a lot of people who had their homes burned. So we know that that's happened. And that's just one of the three complex fires. So we do know that in one fire, they didn't have that many. Maybe you had five structures, and that could be an outbuilding or a barn or something like that. In other areas that are more heavily populated, you know for a fact that there were neighborhoods that went up in flames. And this is coming after uh, so many other seasons of wildfires. Is it the same general area that we're talking about that keeps getting hit? Some, some of it is. And you know, after a while, the people, the people live there thinking, well, what is there left to burn? I mean, some of these poor people along the Russian River that's north of San Francisco, you know, that's just to the west of Sonoma County uh, wine country, is, uh, you know, they were saying we had floods during the wintertime. We had a fire, you know, just last fall. Um, you know, and now we have to do this. I mean, some people were saying, and these are people who live along the river, and they said, you know, we're just going to live in an RV. We're not homeless, but we have to keep packing up and moving every six months. We have to, like, pick up all of our stuff and be mobile. We're just going to put all our stuff in an RV. I mean, they were seriously looking at that because, um, you know, you wonder, some of these poor people have to evacuate every couple of months, and, and you start to wonder why they keep going back to those areas. But, you know, you ask, why do you want to live in, in the forest when it burns down? Why do you want to live in in California when there are earthquakes. I mean, you know, you, you can't answer those questions. That, you know, people love to live where they live. <laughs> that is true. All right, Holly Kwan, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much again for your time. No problem.
All right. Holly Kwan, a KCBS reporter talking about the very latest in the wildfires burning in California. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, later this morning, we are going to get an update from the BC coroner's office announcing how many people have lost their lives to opioid overdoses in the last month. And if you've been following along with those news conferences, the numbers have unfortunately and sadly been growing. May and June both had more than 170 reported fatalities. We're joined now on the line by UBC Professor of Medicine, Dr. Mark Tyndall, who is calling for a bit of a different approach when it comes to opioid use and preventing overdose deaths. Dr. Tyndall, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Well, I know we've talked about this before, and it seems like we talk about it when the coroner's office puts out these numbers. So what would you like to see, or what do you think needs to be done? What's the first thing we could do? Well, as you've uh, mentioned, the the numbers aren't getting better, and um, we've been talking about this for over five years in the middle of this crisis, and uh, I do think we need some you know, dramatic changes in our approach, and um, many of us have been calling for a, a low-barrier safe supply access for people to uh, have an alternative to the street drug supply. Um, decriminalization uh, would certainly be part of that, and also to shift some of our resources away from our law enforcement into uh, more community-based services. Uh, So when we talk about law enforcement, uh, when we talk to Vancouver police, and specifically in in Vancouver proper, uh, they say they haven't enforced it for years and that there's already kind of a de facto decriminalization. What do you say to that? Well, um, in the downtown east side itself, uh, we know the statistics uh, don't reflect that necessarily. There's still a lot of uh, arrests going on there, maybe not for simple drug possession, but um, many people in that community specifically and around the province are sort of tied up in a criminal justice system that never lets them go. So uh, people are there for many other reasons and directly for possession of drugs, but it's still... uh, our approach is very heavily um, focused on criminality of drugs and drug use. Do you mean like uh, kind of the cycle of breaking in or, or theft to support, to get money to support the habit? Sure, that's part of it. Um, Low-level dealing. So again, uh, the police tend to target people who are selling the drugs. But again, in most cases, that's people who are also using the drugs at the street level. So uh, it, it does... Uh, put people in that uh, criminal cycle and then people just not showing up for court dates and other uh, other smaller crimes um, are still in and out of jail uh, pretty consistently. When you talk about a safe supply and that being available to people, do you have any idea what impact that would actually have in that even with a safe supply, I would imagine there are still going to be people who would access street drugs? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great point. I mean, the fentanyl um, has changed a lot of the um, the uh, patterns of drug use. They're very potent drugs. Some of the offerings, even though small, um, with uh, hydromorphone pills, for instance, uh, don't uh, satisfy everybody's needs. Um, so we need to expand our repertoire of what's available for. Uh, People. But to me, it's just very simple. We're sitting in a supervised injection site or working in the, around the downtown east side and just waiting for people to overdose and going in and intervening doesn't make any sense this far into the epidemic. And we really need to at least offer people an alternative. And uh, we, there, uh, people, the, the work that I've been doing with the hydromorphone pills, um, 
um, everybody on them is uh, is doing great. And it doesn't mean they haven't purchased any street drugs, uh, but even if we can get them to purchase, you know, 75% less, that's uh, a, a big improvement of what's going on now. Uh, when we talk about this, inevitably, as uh, this becomes uh, an issue, we talk about the overdose deaths. How many people would you say, or do we know how many people each day, when you when you say it's responding to people in safe consumption sites, how many people are brought back every day? Uh, that's a great question. We estimate that for every death, there's 20 non-fatal overdoses. And um, many of those are brought back by naloxone, but even just other people around uh, supporting them through their overdose. So there's a, a lot more overdoses that are happening uh, without deaths. And the, um, the uh, supervised sites are really important. Uh, people can intervene quickly, um, but uh, probably 80% of people who are using drugs and who are at risk have never visited the supervised injection site. So the, we still know consistently that about 80% of people found overdosing are by themselves. And when we talk about, I mean, that number is quite staggering when you think about how many people then are overdosing and who are brought back, whether it's by naloxone or by another intervention. I mean, I I think anybody could agree that's really no way to live. Nobody wakes up and says, this is what I want to do today. How do you get to a point then? Is it safe? Does safe supply fix that? Does, Does treatment? How do you get to the point where somebody breaks that cycle? Yeah, well, again, that's a, a, a great question. And um, my experience is that if we can get people at a point where they have some stability, they can make other decisions about their drug use. Everybody that I'm um, prescribing safe supply now, if you ask them what their goal of the program, it would be to reduce or stop using drugs. So people um, are dissatisfied with the current situation and the risk that they're taking, but they have no obvious way to get out of it. And uh, to stabilize people, say, look, here's the drugs that you need. Um, and you don't have to be hustling all the time and out there on the street with the informal economy. Um, it gives people an opportunity to get things uh, back together and work on housing and relationships and other things. So to me, that's the first step and, uh, and get, try and get people on a, on a different trajectory. Uh, do you think that would also help as far as public not only public perception, but also public support in that people get mad when they walk out their front door and see needles everywhere. People get mad when they walk outside and their car has been broken into for the fourth time, even though there's nothing in it. And and it becomes quite personal. And it, there's that disconnect between what's happening to the human being who's doing these things and why these things are happening. If those things stopped because of a safe supply or because of a different approach, do you think that would help with public support? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I think uh, these are, you know, human beings who are we put in a very desperate situation with prohibition and making these drugs illegal. Um, we um, people have to pay extortionary amounts of money to get get their drugs. And uh, if we can give them an alternative to that, it would have a direct impact on uh, on the nuisances around the uh, the communities that uh, people are always complaining about. And so I think it, uh, it would have a, a direct impact on that. And uh, people, you know, when you're doing something that's highly stigmatized and illegal, um, it's no surprise that people seek out areas that are, you know, <laughs> that, that are uh, quiet and alone and, uh, and will discard their, their junk and needles there. So I think we really need to um, bring people back out into the, community, treat their 
problems as with a medical view, not a legal view, and uh, and try to change the whole trajectory for people. All right, uh, Dr. Tyndall, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. That is Mark Tyndall. He's a professor of medicine at the UBC School of Population and Public Health, also an infectious disease doctor. Your thoughts on this, if you want to give me a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Well, some are calling it vindication for the Canadian lumber industry, the World Trade Organization ruling. The United States has no basis to levy billions of dollars in duty. Susan Yurkovich is the president and CEO of the BC Lumber Trade Council, and she is joining us now to talk more more about this ruling. Susan, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, good morning. So what does this mean for BC? Well, this is uh, just uh, another chapter in, an, in the ongoing fight uh, to respond to the U.S. Uh, baseless allegations against the Canadian industry. Certainly, it proves that when a neutral body looks at the evidence, it's clear that the Department of Commerce findings against the, the uh, Canadian industry are flawed. Unfortunately, though, this is a very long road for us. We still have uh, many more chapters to go in this legal fight. Uh, We believe we will ultimately be successful, but it is a long road. Because this has been going on for decades, hasn't it? Yes, decades. Um, More than four decades now uh, where we face these continued um, allegations by the U.S. industry and, and, you know, we continue to fight them and we are successful, but it, it's a very long and costly pro- process. And of course, it's, it's not helpful um, to the Canadian industry or to the U.S. customers who, have, uh, who are demanding our, our products. Uh, so even though uh, many are calling this a scathing indictment of the trade actions being taken by the U.S. government, this is just one chapter in this very long dispute. As far as immediate relief or something that B.C. lumber producers will see here, will they see any noticeable change? No, unfortunately, um, the World Trade Organization, of course, has also been weakened by um, the U.S. failing to appoint members to its appellant body. So there's no place for this to be appealed, and there is a right of appeal in this action. We also have an, um, we have a, an action under the former NAFTA, or now USMCA, agreement. So we have other uh, litigation underway. But unfortunately, there's no immediate relief for the industry. We continue to pay 20.23% on average duties on lumber that is shipped across the border. And this has taken place and happened during different administrations in the United States. Did you think things might have changed when we, we saw the office in the president's office change? You know, this is a fight that has gone on with both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. So it's, it's, it's not unusual for us. Um, we had hoped that we would have uh, an administration that was um, less protectionist. But of course, that has proved to be exactly the opposite. The U.S. industry continues to use its trade law. Uh, to fight our industry rather than to investing in a in a business strategy where they're building their own capacity in the U.S. So with this ruling, though, and uh, looking at it with the, the fact that the WTO has identified 40 uh, cases where the U.S. Department of Commerce, uh, the finding of a subsidy was not uh, supported, there was no evidence to show that that was happening. Does that then help the fight as this will continue for the foreseeable future? Does that help BC's position? Yeah, I think it once again 
demonstrates that when a neutral body, um, a body that's an unbiased body, looks at the evidence, they clearly find that there's no subsidy here. And so I think that's important for us. It, it proves once again that what the Canadian industry has and the BC industry has been saying for decades, that we don't, we are not subsidized in this country. It will eventually help us as we wind our way uh, through this process. And hopefully, you know, after a number of these legal wins, uh, we get to a place where we can work towards a negotiated solution that's got more durability to it. In the meantime, though, like you said, this is costing billions of dollars and there's no end in sight. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, basically, we are paying and these are, you know, cash deposits. That's those billions of dollars are held and they're not invested in plant or equipment or communities or um, looking at new innovations in the sector. We can't use those funds because they're on deposit uh, being held until this case is uh, remedied or until it's concluded. Um, and in the on the U.S. side of the border, um, they're also paying you know, significantly higher prices for lumber at a time when, of course, we know that prices are very high and they're paying that part of that uh, lift is related to the duties. Where do you see things going from here? Well, unfortunately, I see us continuing the fight. And I would say that the good news is, is that we are experienced at this fight, having done it for decades, and we have a, an industry that's highly resilient. We work a coordinate, we work in a coordinated way with the BC government on this fight, uh, a Team BC approach, and we also work closely with the Council for the Government of Canada, and we know that we will continue to take this through uh, the legal process, and in the end, we will be successful. It's just very time-consuming, it's very costly, and of course, we think both that time and the resources could be put to better use, growing demand for lumber and helping to provide products that have a definite advantage in a world that's focused on carbon. All right. Well, we will be waiting uh, to see what happens next uh, in this ongoing battle. Uh, Susan Yurkovich, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Take care. You too. That is Susan Yurkovich, the president and CEO of the BC Lumber Trade Council. Well, you'll likely remember the fatal crash in Kamloops taking the life of a member of the Snowbirds team. It was Captain Jen Casey. The aerial performance team, though, now, weeks later, has been cleared to fly again. So to talk a little bit more about this and how things have unfolded, we are joined by Matthew Fisher, a global news commentator. He weighs in on stories involving the Canadian military. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the planes, as we know, have been grounded since May. They are going to be headed to Moose Jaw, where the team will be based for the next two weeks. Is this pretty common procedure when dealing with a fatality, a fatal crash like this? Yes, so things kind of go in slow motion. So uh, there is an initial pause where the aircraft don't fly at all. Now they are being allowed to fly, but it's very limited flying. It's really just to get them over the mountains, across the prairies, and to their home base in Muscha. I spoke last night with an Air Force colonel who told me that they would not be performing any stunts, any loops, trying anything. They would fly completely with, a, if you like, an even profile, except, of course, they would have to climb in altitude to get over the Rockies. Uh, but uh, they will go home and then they will do limited flying there 
Well, they await the report on what actually went wrong. And these reports, people think, oh, these can be done in a few weeks. But in fact, they often take several years because they have to test metals for fatigue. They have to uh, study what videotape is available. Uh, they have to understand the weather. Uh, they have to understand a whole range of things also in relation to the engine of the aircraft, the training of the pilots. And so it does take a while. So this is a step along the way back. And if people are out in B.C. near the airport, uh, they will see those aircraft take off. But uh, don't expect uh, anything spectacular. They will be flying as benignly as possible. And when we look at the cause of the crash, when the the assumption is that it was a bird strike, but also questions about the ejection seats, do you think, is that what they'll be focusing on? Or do they wait for the investigation? Or do they look at that uh, as, a, as, as, as the investigation happens as well? They don't actually, the pilots and the, the crews don't look at the cause at all. There are experts, not only uh, within the military, but in the civilian world, Transport Canada, uh, that look at uh, these very specific issues. But what the pilots and the maintainers will want to know absolutely as soon as they can what the problem is and whether it can be mitigated, whether it can be fixed. And uh, it may take a while. You are right about the speculation is that it was a bird strike. I spoke with a pilot who had many thousands of hours in the Tudors uh, shortly after the accident happened in the middle of May, and uh, he watched the videotape, and he said almost certainly it was a bird strike. And then after that, he, before any speculation in the papers, he said to me, I think there was also a seat ejection and parachute problem. And in fact, that speculation came out in the media a couple of weeks later. Those would be the two main ones. But you know, a lot of other things can go wrong with an airplane. And we have to remember these airplanes are about 60 years old, like so many things in the Canadian Armed Forces, because we don't tend to replace them. We kind of patch them up and keep on going. Uh, we only have about a minute left. Do you think that it's reasonable to anticipate a return to uh, to the previous type, the flying operations? Well, certainly the Air Force has indicated that's what they want to do. It's also a political decision. It costs money, and there have been two accidents in the past year, not just this one. There was another one in the United States with the Canadian aircraft. Uh, and uh, so we'll see. The, the public liked the snowbirds when they did that cross-Canada uh, tour in the summer to uh, thank healthcare workers. I watched it in Ottawa. I always like watching these things. I think the public does. Uh, but we have to look at getting new aircraft to replace these aircraft if, going forward if we're going to have demonstration teams. And right now, I don't think our government is interested in looking at any military issues. Uh, they're looking at other things right now. All right, Matthew, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. I was arrested and really arrested this time. Usually what happens is they arrest me and they let me go. This time I was arrested and fingerprinted. And um, what happened was I was assaulted. 
That was Dore Love. He is the street preacher who has prompted repeated complaints in the West End, many saying he has been amplifying anti-gay rights rhetoric in that part of the city. As you now know, you've likely seen this, that we've been talking about it this morning. There was an altercation with an area resident on the weekend. That man is now in hospital with a broken leg. And to talk more about this, I am joined by Vancouver West End MLA, Spencer Chandra Herbert, on the line. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good to be with you. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I know you live in that neighborhood. You're the the MLA for that neighborhood. Had you seen this uh, street preacher and heard him prior to this altercation? Unfortunately, yes. Um, Coming with um, other hateful buddies of his down to the neighborhood and uh, screaming about how my neighbors are horrible people and that they should uh, face all sorts of horrific pain um, for who they are. And it doesn't matter if they're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, uh, if they're from the Muslim faith. Um, he is full of hate and he wants everybody to know about it. Uh, Whether so- or not it's even blocks away, I should say, because his sound system is so loud. You can hear it in your apartment blocks away. It sounds like there have been calls to police. There have certainly been complaints made about him. Why is it, do you think, that he's been allowed to do this for so long? Uh, There's no good reason because uh, I get, you know, free speech. We need to let people have their speech. But he's breaking those bylaws, clearly. Um, It's definitely over 70 decibels as he screams out his obscenities at people. Um, You know, religious freedom, absolutely, but not freedom to hate and to promote hatred of other people. So he should have been shut down on two grounds. One was breaking the noise bylaws. Two, I would argue, for spreading hatred against identifiable groups, which LGBTQ folks, people who practice other religions. Uh, But it wasn't. Um, People have stood by and watched. uh, As he himself said, well, normally they just, you know, eventually tell me to pack up and move on. Uh, that's not good enough because he just comes back and uh, does it again. So, so we now know uh, Justin Morris said a local resident intervened. Uh, his his version of events is obviously different than what Dory Love's version of events is, but we do know he's in the hospital with a broken leg at this point. Uh, do you think? What is your response to how that unfolded on the weekend? You know, I, I'm in some ways, and it's sad to say, I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier. Because uh, people can only put up with so much hatred for so long before uh, they try to do something about it. And the neighborhood's been trying to do something about it, uh, whether or not it's through the, as they call themselves, the disco task force, which shows up beside him and puts on loud disco music to try and drown out his hatred. Uh, other groups filming uh, multiple calls to the city, to the police, uh, each and every time. Um, Facebook, you know, people have been trying any sort of creative means to get this guy to stop his hatred. But it hasn't worked. And so I guess what happened on the weekend was a constituent said, enough, I'm turning down the volume so that I don't have to hear you in my apartment, uh, which is blocks away. Um, And then a horrible assault happened. And, you know, we saw it coming. You know, the police should have seen it coming. Uh, Anybody could have seen it coming because you can only push people so far uh, before somebody steps up because the people who are supposed to protect us in this case in his mind and in many people in the West End's mind uh, weren't. Well, I, well, and I think that's what I, what probably is surprising to people, that even if you take the hate speech out of it, which is obviously a very big part of this, but the fact that somebody has been allowed to 
to be in the West End, to be in any neighborhood. Like you said, breaking the noise bylaw, amplifying this screaming, the fact that anybody is allowed to do that and, and kind of ruin it for everybody else seems very surprising. Uh, it certainly does, you know, I, and that it's multiple times and, you know, eventually after hours of doing it, being asked, well, move along now, you shouldn't do that anymore. No fines, no penalties. And then he shows up again a day later in a different location. Um, you know, this has been going on at least since June. So uh, this is not a new thing. Um, I, I do look forward to speaking with the police today to uh, get their version of events about why they were not able to uh, shut him down sooner. Um, but also I'm looking to the city for, for answers because this is breaking municipal bylaws. Now, no West Enders know um, noise, and we know that we've not been successful at shutting down loud vehicle noise, even though those two break the law. Um, but in this case, it added with hate speech clearly um, should have been taken much more seriously. Uh, and, and you, as somebody who has heard what he has been saying, like you said, since he's been showing up there since June, what do you say then to his take on this? He says that he isn't saying anything hateful. He was sent there by God to preach the Bible, and he's the one who's been assaulted. Uh, you know, I choose not to say his name because he wants notoriety. That's mm-hmm. why he sets a loudspeaker so loud nobody can ignore him. Um, you know, with his buddies, it's about promoting himself and his toxic version of reality, which is a version which hates and um, wants to destroy uh, people in my community. Um, he can believe what he wants, but when he starts promoting violence against other people, um, promoting um, that in a, a way that also breaks the law, uh, no, he's he's not a victim here. Um, this is the one perpetrating the aggression and the violence. How confident are you that maybe now you, uh, working with the police, working with the city, will be able to shut him down? Uh, you know, it's tough. I, I, I hope that they will act. Obviously, I, I'm not a law enforcer myself. Uh, I make the law and try and promote the use of the law. Um, but I think uh, uh, hopefully this, you know, he's been arrested and uh, I understand charges have been filed. And so I hope that's enough. But, you know, um, haters will look for any way to promote their toxic version of reality. And so we're going to have to stay vigilant. If it's not him, it'll be somebody else. And that's why I've also asked, do laws need to be changed? Do we need uh, tightening of these bylaws so that uh, the people who didn't act can act um, uh, with a bit more security? I'm not sure to the answer that question yet, but uh, uh, it's gone on too long. So even though it's largely municipal, I felt the need to step up because... uh, it, you know, as Justin Moore said, that he had to step up because for too long, too little was being done. All right. Well, we will definitely be watching to see uh, what happens next uh, and getting updates on this. Uh, Spencer Chandra Herbert, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That is uh, Spencer Chandra Herbert. He is the MLA for Vancouver West End. We'll take a short break. Stick with us here on CKNW. Well, it's hard to think that winter is just around the corner, but... It is. We're getting closer. You can feel even a bit of a a change in the weather. Cooler temperatures right now at the end of August. What does the Farmer's Almanac say, though? What should we be bracing for in the coming months? Joining me on the line is Sandy Duncan, Managing Editor of the Farmer's Almanac. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. I know a lot of people look to this as kind of the know-all when it comes to weather. What is the Farmer's Almanac predicting for Canadians come winter? 
Well, it's an interesting forecast. The Canadian Farmers Almanac for 2021 is saying that it's going to be a winter divided with some cold conditions as well as drought conditions and a little bit of crazy in between. Um, In your neck of the woods, it doesn't look too crazy, although it does look like um, it'll be kind of colder inland and very wet on the coast and some good snow to the mountains. So it looks like a decent winter if you're in like the uh, wetness. (laughs) That kind of sounds like an average winter for BC, though. What does the the Farmer's Almanac do to, to, to say, we've got this, we know that this is what it's going to look like? Sure. Well, we've been predicting the weather forecast since 1818. Um, We base our long-range outlook on a mathematical and astronomical formula. Um, So we kind of give an overview, a summary of what's to come in the winter, uh, spring, and summer ahead. Each edition contains 16 months of weather forecast. Um, And then we just break the country down into zones, and we break the um, zones down by months, and we kind of give you a three-day interval. So we kind of, if you're trying to figure out what's going to be like for Thanksgiving holiday or perhaps Christmas or perhaps to plan out some uh, ski trip in the uh, winter, we've got the forecast all inside. And do you know what the accuracy rate is for the Almanac? Um, people that follow our forecast say they're about 75 to 80% accurate. Now, last winter was a challenging one. Um, it's, we called for a polar coaster winter with lots of ups and downs on the thermometer. And we weren't totally off, but that cold air just didn't seem to want to come down from the Arctic. Um, so that was very interesting. And we like to remind people that we do our best to give people an idea of what may come. But Mother Nature, she's in charge. <laughs> yes, we get reminded of that quite often. Um, what about some other parts uh, of the country? Is anybody bracing for uh, some some unpredictable or, or weather that's different than what they might normally uh, be be bracing for? Sure. Well, we are predicting an unseasonably mild winter for the eastern provinces, uh, including Newfoundland, Labrador, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and New Brunswick. Um, we're in the middle of the country. We see more normal seasonal temperatures for Quebec and central Ontario. Ontario, excuse me. Um, but farther west, like we mentioned, um, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and uh, eastern British Columbia, we do see colder, colder than normal winter temperatures um, and a lot of snow in western Quebec and Ontario. And do you find the Almanac, do people still access it with the actual physical book or has technology changed in the way that people get the Almanac information? Well, I'm glad you asked that. This is the first year we're actually introducing that the Canadian Farmer's Almanac is only available in digital-only format, and it's pretty much based on people's request, and we decided to test it out. So if you want to find out um, how to get a copy, you have to go to farmersalmanac.com, and you can download it. But it's really been interesting because um, a publication that started back in 1818 now is digital and now has a website at farmersalmanac.com that people access not only for the weather but natural living tips, how to uh, make different kinds of foods, and, and just live a happier, healthier lifestyle. <laughs> Which makes sense. We think with all the technology and all of the apps and different ways that people can try and get weather forecasts, if it's a tried and true method and you rely on that almanac, great to have different ways of getting it. Absolutely. We got to keep up with the times, even though stay true to our traditional approach. <laughs> all right. Any other uh, anomalies or anything else you wanted to share with us? Uh, no, but we're proud to say that one of our t- winners of the recipe contest is actually from British Columbia. Um, she won third place for her banana recipe, and it's an interesting recipe because it's a little more savory than sweet. So if you're tired of making that banana bread that a lot of people made during the pandemic, we have some great award-winning banana recipes. Uh, which is interesting, too, that I think people think of the almanac as weather only, but there is all that other stuff in it, too. 
Absolutely. We have tips about, you know, how to boost your immunity, um, gardening information, fishing information. It's kind of a collection of basically how to live life a little more naturally. All right. Sounds great. And people, again, can get it then this year, digital copy, and they can get it. Uh, go to the website? Yep, at FarmersAlmanac.com. All right, Sandy, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, a former security official at Canadian telecom giant Nortel claims top secret plans flowed out of Nortel executives' accounts to several mysterious internet addresses in China. Brian Shields says he tried to warn Nortel's executive to take action. Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper has a new piece out on this today, and Sam joins us now to talk a bit more about this. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, So Brian Shields there, who uh, you've written about and talk about in the piece, says he's disappointed that Ottawa didn't step in to save Nortel. What else did you learn from him? Well, what we learned is that Brian Shields gave an extremely detailed account of what he found when uh, in 2004 he was asked to investigate this strange breach and he tracked it directly back to uh, what what looks like a room full or a building full of servers in Shanghai. And that was his first clue that uh, this, this wasn't some random cyber criminal. This was someone that controlled China's Internet. Uh, and it turns out that, that other investigators pointed to China's most elite cyber war unit. So what he and others told us was that this was a, a, a very powerful state-sponsored cyber attack on Nortel, and uh, China focused on Nortel for very specific reasons. Nortel was the world leader. It held the future lead on 5G technology, and uh, China needed uh, Nortel's innovation secrets to to meet its state-mandated telecommunication future. So in the end, uh, what we found was uh, many different espionage techniques from human espionage in Ottawa, planting of bugs in Nortel's facilities. Uh, it, it looks like attempts to compromise Nortel's managers, even Canada's government, with regards to decisions on Nortel, and uh, a very shocking convergence between Chinese intelligence agencies and Chinese organized crime that allegedly worked together to spy on Nortel and deliver those uh, crown jewel technology secrets back to Beijing so that Beijing could build its state champion companies. And uh, the alleged benefiter, uh, our experts say, look straight at Huawei. How did that company uh, rise from zero to hero in about 10, 20 years? The experts say that just doesn't happen in telecommunications. We're talking about companies with 10, 20, 50, 100 years of history that were leaders. Um, how, did, how did China catch up so quick? And did you find through your research and reporting, where was the, the weak link? Was it human uh, humans? Was it the technology that China was able to break through? Well, really a mixture of both. Uh, we talked to... Uh, the, the former Canadian Security Intelligence Service uh, investigator, Michel Junot-Katsio, he said in the 1990s, he started to recognize, his agency started to recognize a lot of traffic between Nortel managers going over to China. And uh, what CSIS says is that these were attempts through what, what is called China's United Front to influence leaders inside Nortel, also leaders in, Can- in Canada's government 
to uh, the benefit of China. The other thing would be uh, you look for the experts say you look for the human weaknesses. You try to compromise them. You try to uh, ensure that they won't make the right decisions to protect a company like Nortel. Also, China uh, is extremely powerful in terms of its cyber war capacity. So in detail, we have this uh, this hacking unit where, you know, you have hundreds of hackers in a building in Shanghai working 24-7, targeting uh, the very, you know, top targets around the world from China's political leaders that, so that the, uh, the military can gather the secrets it wants, whether that be technology, whether it be inside the emails of leaders so you can get, get an idea of what Western leaders are, are going to do and get ahead of them. Uh, there's a line in your piece saying that for months, Shields tracked the hackers, but Nortel's brass was mostly disinterested in the investigation and did little more than change executive account passwords. So if they weren't interested in the investigation, what were they focused on? Well, there's a few things going on. Uh, Mr. Shields and the experts say at the time, uh, cyber espionage, cyber hacking was very new. So although the experts uh, inside the company understood the, the, the insidiousness, the, the, the depth of this breach, the executives were more focused on yearly budgets. They're, they're more focused on spending on innovation. And uh, in some ways, you can't fault them that much because cyber hacking was so new. So it's almost like they were the, the security experts were talking to them and the, the CEOs uh, were thought they were listening to a spy plot. They didn't take it seriously. Uh, some people uh, in the intelligence world say that's a management failure and others say that, you know, there could be certain managers that made bad decisions for bad reasons. Uh, I still don't have clarity on those types of allegations, but what they're suggesting is some people could have been compromised. All right, Sam, we'll leave it there for today. It uh, is a very interesting read. Thank you so much uh, for joining us to talk a bit more about it. Thank you. That is Sam Cooper. He is a global news investigative journalist. If you want to read the full article, you can access it on the Global News website. Your thoughts, if you want to weigh in on this or anything you've heard on the program, please do. Again, the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. You can also email me, jill at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as the wildfire danger in B.C. calms down a little bit, much to the relief of people living in the Okanagan, south of the border in the state of California, there are hundreds of thousands of residents who are on evacuation alert, told they may have to leave their homes as the fires there continue to grow. We're joined now by KCBS reporter Holly Kwan for more on what's happening there. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Sure, no problem. Uh, What is the latest on what's happening with the fires in California? Well, the good news is that it seems like the fires are, you know, getting better as far as containment-wise. It's been over a week since we had this unusual lightning storm, which we don't get here in San Francisco area. It sparked wildfires, which really didn't start requiring evacuations until early last week, and then things got out of control. Summer here usually means fog and drizzle, and this time we saw sizzling temperatures and so many wildfires, they stopped naming each one of them. They just started clustering them together. So we've got three major ones surrounding us and choking the skies with this sepia haze 
keeping people indoors where they're supposed to be anyway because of the virus pandemic, except for the hundreds of thousands of people who had to evacuate. And that's another thing to worry about is like you've got people who were supposed to be socially distancing. Now they're sleeping on each other's couches and in hotels and in campgrounds. And, you know, what exactly is that impact going to be? So it seems like right now that we got a break from the weather. We didn't get it, see any more lightning strikes. The fog is kind of coming back, so that's going to give some more moisture and humidity um, to the firefighters. And it looks like the containment numbers are starting to come up, but they caution people we're not out of the woods yet, that the fire is still not completely uh, you know, contained or controlled enough where they're going to be able to let most people back into their homes. And just looking at the description that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom, Newsom put out, uh, saying that more than 1.2 million acres have burned and to get that that idea in your head saying that it's nearly the size of the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that because we have so many fires that are burning around us, I mean, it, it does look it, scary, you know, on TV. And believe me, I was up in the middle of some of them last week. And, you know, there are houses that are burned. There are rural areas that are burned. There's pasture land that burned. There are redwood forests and groves that burn. So there's different kinds of terrain that burn. And all of it is, this, you know, iconic for the Bay Area. We love our redwoods. We love the trees that are you know, right next to the ocean. And all of that area, like near Santa Cruz, um, near some of those big uh, UC Santa Cruz, the college campuses are, are beautiful. And they, you know, burned some of the, the areas that people go to camp and brought their kids up. That place is burned. And so it's going to be a while where we go, where we get a chance to go back in and see really what the damage has been. So at this point, you mentioned that some uh, homes had burned or that some structures had burned. Do they know at this point how great the damage is? They're still going to have to assess that. I mean, one fire that I was at, they had already had uh, up to like 845, I think, structures had burned. And a lot of those were homes that I saw a lot of people who had their homes burned. So we know that that's happened. And that's just one of the three complex fires. So we do know that in one fire, they didn't have that many. Maybe you had five structures, and that could be an outbuilding or a barn or something like that. In other areas that are more heavily populated, you know for a fact that there were neighborhoods that went up in flames. And this is coming after uh, so many other seasons of wildfires. Is it the same general area that we're talking about that keeps getting hit? Some, some of it is. And, you know, after a while, the people, the people live there thinking, well, what is there left to burn? I mean, some of these poor people along the Russian River that's north of San Francisco, you know, that's just to the west of Sonoma County uh, wine country, is, uh, you know, they were saying we had floods during the winter time. We had a fire, you know, just last fall. Um, you know, and now we have to do this. I mean, some people were saying, and these are people who live along the river, and they said, you know, we're just going to live in an RV. We're not homeless, but we have to keep packing up and moving every six months. We have to, like, pick up all of our stuff and be mobile. We're just going to put all our stuff in an RV. I mean, they were seriously looking at that because, um, you know, you wonder, some of these poor people have to evacuate every couple of months, and, and you start to wonder why they keep going back to those areas. But, you know, you ask, why do you want to live in, in the forest when it burns down? Why do you want to live in in California when there are earthquakes. I mean, you know, you, you can't answer those questions. They, you know, people love to live where they live. <laughs> that is true. All right, Holly Kwan, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much again for your time. No problem. All right, Holly Kwan, a KCBS reporter, talking about the very latest in the wildfires burning in California. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, later this morning, we are going to get an update from the BC Coroner's Office announcing how many people have lost their lives to opioid overdoses in the last month. And if you've been following along with those news conferences, the numbers have unfortunately and sadly been growing. May and June both had more than 170 reported fatalities. We're joined now on the line by UBC Professor of Medicine, Dr. Mark Tyndall, who is calling for a bit of a different approach when it comes to opioid use and preventing overdose deaths. Dr. Tyndall, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. Well, I know we've talked about this before, and it seems like we talk about it when the coroner's office puts out these numbers. So what would you like to see, or what do you think needs to be done? What's the first thing we could do? Well, as you've uh, mentioned, the the numbers aren't getting better. And um, we've been talking about this for over five years in the middle of this crisis. And uh, I do think we need some dramatic changes in our approach. And um, many of us have been calling for a a low barrier safe supply access for people to uh, have an alternative to the street drug supply. Um, Decriminalization uh, would certainly be part of that. And also to shift some of our resources away from our law enforcement into uh, more community-based services. Uh, So when we talk about law enforcement, uh, when we talk to Vancouver police, and specifically in in Vancouver proper, uh, they say they haven't enforced it for years and that there's already kind of a de facto decriminalization. What do you say to that? Well, um, in the downtown east side itself, um, we know the statistics uh, don't reflect that necessarily. There's still a lot of uh, arrests going on there, maybe not for simple drug possession, but um, many people in that community specifically and around the province are sort of tied up in a criminal justice system that never lets them go. So uh, people are there for many other reasons and directly for possession of drugs, but it's still... uh, our approach is very heavily um, focused on criminality of drugs and drug use. Do you mean like uh, kind of the cycle of breaking in or, or theft to support, to get money to support the habit? Sure, that's part of it. Um, Low-level dealing. So again, uh, the police tend to target people who are selling the drugs. But again, in most cases, that's people who are also using the drugs at the street level. So uh, it, it does... Uh, put people in that uh, criminal cycle and then people just not showing up for court dates and other uh, other smaller crimes um, are still in and out of jail uh, pretty consistently. When you talk about a safe supply and that being available to people, do you have any idea what impact that would actually have in that even with a safe supply, I would imagine there are still going to be people who would access street drugs? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great point. I mean, the fentanyl um, has changed a lot of the um, the uh, patterns of drug use. They're very potent drugs. Some of the offerings, even though small, um, with uh, hydromorphone pills, for instance, uh, don't uh, satisfy everybody's needs. Um, so we need to expand our repertoire of what's available for. Uh, people. But to me, it's just very simple. We're sitting in a supervised injection site or working in the, around the downtown east side and just waiting for people to overdose and going in and intervening doesn't make any sense this far into the epidemic. And we really need to at least offer people an alternative. And uh, we, there, uh, people, the, the work that I've been doing with the hydromorphone pills, um, um, everybody on them is, uh, is doing great. And doesn't mean they haven't purchased any street drugs, uh, but even if we can get them to purchase, you know, 
75% less, that's uh, a, a big improvement of what's going on now. Uh, when we talk about this, inevitably, as uh, this becomes uh, an issue, we talk about the overdose deaths. How many people would you say, or do we know how many people each day, when you, when you say it's responding to people in safe consumption sites, how many people are brought back every day? Uh, that's a great question. We estimate that for every death, there's 20 non-fatal overdoses. And um, many of those are brought back by naloxone, but even just other people around uh, supporting them through their overdose. So there's a, a lot more overdoses that are happening uh, without deaths. And the, um, the uh, supervised sites are really important. Uh, people can intervene quickly, um, but uh, probably... 80% of people who are using drugs and who are at risk have never visited the supervised injection site. So the, we still know consistently that about 80% of people found overdosing are by themselves. And when we talk about, I mean, that number is quite staggering when you think about how many people then are overdosing and who are brought back, whether it's by naloxone or by another intervention. I mean, I, I think anybody could agree that's really no way to live. Nobody wakes up and says, this is what I want to do today. How do you get to a point then? Is it safe? Does safe supply fix that? Does, does treatment? How do you get to the point where somebody breaks that cycle? Yeah, well, again, that's a, a, a great question. And um, my experience is that if we can get people at a point where they have some stability, they can make other decisions about their drug use. Everybody that I'm um, prescribing safe supply now, if you ask them what their goal of the program, it would be to reduce or stop using drugs. So people um, are dissatisfied with the current situation and the risk that they're taking, but they have no obvious way to get out of it. And uh, to stabilize people, say, look, here's the drugs that you need, um, and you don't have to be hustling all the time and out there on the street with the informal economy. Um, it gives people an opportunity to get things uh, back together and work on housing and relationships and other things. So to me, that's the first step. And uh and get try and get people on a on a different trajectory. Uh, do you think that would also help as far as public not only public perception but also public support in that people get mad when they walk out their front door and see needles everywhere. People get mad when they walk outside and their car has been broken into for the fourth time even though there's nothing in it. And and it becomes quite personal and it, there's that disconnect between what's happening to the human being who's doing these things and why these things are happening. If those things stopped because of a safe supply or because of a different approach, do you think that would help with public support? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, I think uh, these are, you know, human beings who are we put in a very desperate situation with prohibition and making these drugs illegal. Um, we um, people have to pay extortionary amounts of money to get get their drugs. And uh, if we can give them an alternative to that, it would have a direct impact on uh, on the nuisances around the uh, the communities that uh, people are always complaining about. And so I think it, uh, it would have a, a direct impact on that. And uh, people, you know, when you're doing something that's highly stigmatized and illegal, um, it's no surprise that people seek out areas that are, you know, <laughs> that, that are uh, quiet and alone and, uh, and will discard their, their junk and needles there. So I think we really need to, um, bring people back out into the community, treat their problems as with a medical view, not a legal view, and, uh, and try to change the whole trajectory for people. All right, uh, Dr. Tindall, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much.
Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. That is Mark Tyndall. He's a professor of medicine at the UBC School of Population and Public Health, also an infectious disease doctor. Your thoughts on this, if you want to give me a call on the buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, some are calling it vindication for the Canadian lumber industry, the World Trade Organization ruling. The United States has no basis to levy billions of dollars in duty. Susan Yurkovich is the president and CEO of the BC Lumber Trade Council, and she is joining us now to talk more about this ruling. Susan, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. So what does this mean for BC? Well, this is uh, just uh, another chapter in an, in the ongoing fight uh, to respond to the U.S. Uh, baseless allegations against the Canadian industry. Certainly, it proves that when a neutral body looks at the evidence, it's clear that the Department of Commerce findings against the, the uh, Canadian industry are flawed. Unfortunately, though, this is a very long road for us. We still have... Uh, many more chapters to go in this legal fight. Uh, We believe we will ultimately be successful, but it is a long road. Because this has been going on for decades, hasn't it? Yes, decades. Um, More than four decades now, uh, where we face these continued um, allegations by the U.S. industry, and and, we continue to fight them, and we are successful, but it's a very long and costly process. And of course, it's it's not helpful um, to the Canadian industry or to the U.S. customers who have uh, who are demanding our, our products. Uh, so even though uh, many are calling this a scathing indictment of the trade actions being taken by the U.S. government, this is just one chapter in this very long dispute. As far as immediate relief or something that BC lumber producers will see here, will they see any noticeable change? No, unfortunately, um, the World Trade Organization, of course, has also been weakened by um, the U.S. failing to appoint members to its appellant body. So there's no place for this to be appealed, and there is a right of appeal in this action. We also have a num- we have a, an action under the former NAFTA or now USMCA agreement. So we have other uh, litigation underway, but unfortunately, there's no immediate relief for the industry. We continue to pay 20.23 percent on average duties on lumber that is shipped across the border. And this has taken place and happened during different administrations in the United States. Did you think things might have changed when we we saw the office in the president's office change? You know, this is a fight that has gone on with both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations. So it's 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 not unusual for us. Um, We had hoped that we would have uh, an administration that was um, less protectionist, but of course that has proved to be exactly the opposite. The U.S. industry continues to use its trade law uh, to fight our industry rather than to investing in a, in a business strategy where they're building their own capacity in the U.S. So with this ruling, though, and uh, looking at it with the the fact that the WTO has identified 40 uh, cases where the U.S. Department of Commerce, uh, the finding of a subsidy was not uh, supported, there was no evidence to show that that was happening. Does that then help the fight as this will continue for the foreseeable future? Does that help BC's position? Yeah, I think it once again demonstrates that when a neutral body, um, a body that's an unbiased body, looks at the evidence, they clearly find that there's no subsidy here. 
And so I think that's important for us. It, it proves once again that what the Canadian industry has and the BC industry has been saying for decades that we don't, we are not subsidized in this country. It will eventually help us as we wind our way uh, through this process. And hopefully, you know, after a number of these legal wins, uh, we get to a place where we can work towards a negotiated solution that's got more durability to it. In the meantime, though, like you said, this is costing billions of dollars and there's no end in sight. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, basically, we are paying and these are, you know, cash deposits. That's those billions of dollars are held and they're not invested in plant or equipment or communities or um, looking at new innovations in the sector. We can't use those funds because they're on deposit uh, being held until this case is uh, remedied or until it's concluded. Um, and in the, on the U.S. side of the border, um, they're also paying you know, significantly higher prices for lumber at a time when, of course, we know that prices are very high and they're paying that part of that uh, lift is related to the duties. Where do you see things going from here? Well, unfortunately, I see us continuing the fight. And I would say that the good news is, is that we are experienced at this fight, having done it for decades, and we have a, an industry that's highly resilient. We work a coordinate, we work in a coordinated way with the BC government on this fight, uh, a Team BC approach, and we also work closely with the Council for the Government of Canada, and we know that we will continue to take this through uh, the legal process, and in the end, we will be successful. It's just very time-consuming, it's very costly, and of course, we think both that time and the resources could be put to better use, growing demand for lumber and helping to provide products that have a definite advantage in a world that's focused on carbon. All right. Well, we will be waiting uh, to see what happens next uh, in this ongoing battle. Uh, Susan Yurkovich, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Take care. You too. That is Susan Yurkovich, the president and CEO of the BC Lumber Trade Council. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you'll likely remember the fatal crash in Kamloops taking the life of a member of the Snowbirds team. It was Captain Jen Casey. The aerial performance team, though, now, weeks later, has been cleared to fly again. So to talk a little bit more about this and how things have unfolded, we are joined by Matthew Fisher, a Global News commentator. He weighs in on stories involving the Canadian military. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the planes, as we know, have been grounded since May. They are going to be headed to Moose Jaw, where the team will be based for the next two weeks. Is this pretty common procedure when dealing with a fatality, a fatal crash like this? Yes, so things kind of go in slow motion. So uh, there is an initial pause where the aircraft don't fly at all. Now they are being allowed to fly, but it's very limited flying. It's really just to get them over the mountains, across the prairies, uh, and to their home base in Muscha. I spoke last night with an Air Force colonel who told me that they would not be performing any stunts, any loops, trying anything. They would fly completely with, a, if you like, an even profile, except, of course, they would have to climb in altitude to get over the Rockies. Uh, but uh, they will go home and then they will do limited flying there while they await the report on what actually went wrong. And these reports 
people think, oh, this can be done in a few weeks. But in fact, they often take several years because they have to test metals for fatigue. They have to uh, study what videotape is available. Uh, they have to understand the weather. Uh, they have to understand a whole range of things also in relation to the engine of the aircraft, the training of the pilots. And so it does take a while. So this is a step along the way back. And if people are out in B.C. near the airport, uh, they will see those aircraft take off. But uh, don't expect uh, anything spectacular. They will be flying as benignly as possible. And when we look at the cause of the crash, when the the assumption is that it was a bird strike, but also questions about the ejection seats, do you think, is that what they'll be focusing on? Or do they wait for the investigation? Or do they look at that uh, as, a, as, as, as the investigation happens as well? They don't actually, the pilots and the, the crews don't look at the cause at all. There are experts, not only uh, within the military, but in the civilian world, Transport Canada, uh, that look at uh, these very specific issues. But what the pilots and the maintainers will want to know uh, absolutely as soon as they can what the problem is and whether it can be mitigated, whether it can be fixed. And uh, it may take a while. You are right about the speculation is that it was a bird strike. I spoke with a pilot who had many thousands of hours in the Tudors uh, shortly after the accident happened in the middle of May, and uh, he watched the videotape, and he said almost certainly it was a bird strike. And then after that, he, before any speculation in the papers, he said to me, I think there was also a seat ejection and parachute problem. And in fact, that speculation came out in the media a couple of weeks later. Those would be the two main ones, but you know, a lot of other things can go wrong with an airplane, and we have to remember these airplanes are about 60 years old, like so many things in the Canadian Armed Forces, because we don't tend to replace them. We kind of patch them up and keep on going. Uh, we only have about a minute left. Do you think that it's reasonable to anticipate a return to, uh, to the previous type, the flying operations? Well, certainly the Air Force has indicated that's what they want to do. It's also a political decision. It costs money, and there have been two accidents in the past year, not just this one. There was another one in the United States with the Canadian aircraft. Uh, and so we'll see. The public liked the Snowbirds when they did that cross-Canada tour in the summer to thank healthcare workers. I watched it in Ottawa. I always like watching these things. I think the public does. Uh, but we have to look at getting new aircraft to replace these aircraft if, going forward if we're going to have demonstration teams. And right now, I don't think our government is interested in looking at any military issues. Uh, they're looking at other things right now. All right, Matthew, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. I was arrested and really arrested this time. Usually what happens is they arrest me and they let me go. This time I was arrested and fingerprinted. 
And um, what happened to us, I was assaulted. That was Dore Love. He is the street preacher who has prompted repeated complaints in the West End, many saying he has been amplifying anti-gay rights rhetoric in that part of the city. As you now know, you've likely seen this, that we've been talking about it this morning. There was an altercation with an area resident on the weekend. That man is now in hospital with a broken leg. And to talk more about this, I am joined by Vancouver West End MLA, Spencer Chandra Herbert, on the line. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good to be with you. I I wanted to ask you, I know you live in that neighborhood. You're the the MLA for that neighborhood. Had you seen this uh, street preacher and heard him prior to this altercation? Uh, Unfortunately, yes. Um, Coming with um, other hateful buddies of his down to the neighborhood and uh, screaming about how my neighbors are horrible people and that they should uh, face all sorts of horrific pain um, for who they are. And it doesn't matter if they're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, uh, if they're from the Muslim faith. Um, he is full of hate and he wants everybody to know about it. Uh, uh, whether so- or not it's even blocks away, I should say, because his sound system is so loud. You can hear it in your apartment blocks away. It sounds like there have been calls to police. There have certainly been complaints made about him. Why is it, do you think, that he's been allowed to do this for so long? Uh, There's no good reason, because uh, I get, you know, free speech. We need to let people have their speech. But he's breaking noise bylaws, clearly. Um, It's definitely over 70 decibels as he screams out his obscenities at people. you know, religious freedom, absolutely, but not freedom to hate and to promote hatred of other people. So he should have been shut down on two grounds. One was breaking the noise bylaws. Two, I would argue, for spreading hatred against identifiable groups, which LGBTQ folks, people who practice other religions. Uh, but it wasn't. Um, people have stood by and watched. Uh, as he himself said, well, normally they just, you know, eventually tell me to pack up and move on. Uh, that's not good enough because he just comes back and uh, does it again. So, so we now know uh, Justin Morris said a local resident intervened. Uh, his his version of events is obviously different than what Dory Love's version of events is, but we do know he's in the hospital with a broken leg at this point. Uh, do you think? What is your response to how that unfolded on the weekend? You know, I, I'm in some ways, and it's sad to say, I'm surprised it didn't happen earlier. Because uh, people can only put up with so much hatred for so long before uh, they try to do something about it. And the neighborhood's been trying to do something about it, uh, whether or not it's through the, as they call themselves, the disco task force, which shows up beside him and puts on loud disco music to try and drown out his hatred. Uh, other groups filming uh, multiple calls to the city, to the police, uh, each and every time. Um, Facebook, you know, people have been trying any sort of creative means to get this guy to stop his hatred. But it hasn't worked. And so I guess what happened on the weekend was a constituent said, enough, I'm turning down the volume so that I don't have to hear you in my apartment, uh, which is blocks away. Um, and then a horrible assault happened. And, you know, we saw it coming. It, you know, the police should have seen it coming. Uh, anybody could have seen it coming because you can only push people so far uh, before somebody steps up because the people who are supposed to protect us in this case in his mind, and in many people in the West End's mind, uh, weren't. Well, I, well, and I think that's what I what probably is surprising to people, that even if you take the hate speech out of it, which is obviously a very big part of this, but the fact that somebody has been allowed to 
to be in the West End, to be in any neighborhood. Like you said, breaking the noise bylaw, amplifying this screaming, the fact that anybody is allowed to do that and, and kind of ruin it for everybody else seems very surprising. Uh, it certainly does, you know, I, and that it's multiple times and, you know, eventually after hours of doing it, being asked, well, move along now, you shouldn't do that anymore. No fines, no penalties. And then he shows up again a day later in a different location. Um, you know, this has been going on at least since June, so uh, this is not a new thing. Um, I, I do look forward to speaking with the police today to uh, get their version of events about why they were not able to uh, shut him down sooner. Um, but also I'm looking to the city for, for answers because this is breaking municipal bylaws. Now, no West Enders know um, noise, and we know that we've not been successful at shutting down loud vehicle noise, even though those two break the law. Um, but in this case, it added with hate speech clearly uh, should have been taken much more seriously. Uh, and, and you, as somebody who has heard what he has been saying, like you said, since he's been showing up there since June, what do you say then to his take on this? He says that he isn't saying anything hateful. He was sent there by God to preach the Bible, and he's the one who's been assaulted. Uh, you know, I choose not to say his name because he wants notoriety. That's mm -hmm. why he sets up a loudspeaker so loud nobody can ignore him. Um, you know, with his buddies, it's about promoting himself and his toxic version of reality, which is a version which hates and um, wants to destroy uh, people in my community. Um, he can believe what he wants, but when he starts promoting violence against other people, um, promoting um, that in a, a way that also breaks the law, uh, no, he's he's not a victim here. Um, this is the one perpetrating the aggression and the violence. How confident are you that maybe now you uh, working with the police, working with the city, will be able to shut him down? Uh, you know, it's tough. I, I, I hope that they will act. Obviously, I, I'm not a law enforcer myself. Uh, I make the law and try and promote the use of the law. Um, but I think uh, uh, hopefully this, you know, he's been arrested and I understand charges have been filed, and so I hope that's enough. But, you know, um, haters will look for any way to promote their toxic version of reality. And so we're going to have to stay vigilant. If it's not him, it'll be somebody else. And that's why I've also asked, do laws need to be changed? Do we need a tightening of these bylaws so that uh, the people who didn't act can act um, uh, with a bit more security? I I'm not sure to the answer to that question yet, but... Uh, uh, it's gone on too long, so even though it's largely municipal, I felt the need to step up because, uh, it, you know, as Justin Moore said, that he had to step up because for too long, too little was being done. All right. Well, we will definitely be watching to see uh, what happens next uh, and getting updates on this. Uh, Spencer Chandra Herbert, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. That is uh, Spencer Chandra Herbert. He is the MLA for Vancouver West End. We'll take a short break. Stick with us here on CKNW.